Hello, this is Kat. This is Phoebe. Welcome to Feminine Chaos. <laughs> so, <laughs> why are you already laughing? Was there not a dog growling? Oh, I think you heard the cat. The cat is purring. Or a cat purring. Sorry. Yeah. I just, I was excited about the early arrival of an animal on the scene. Not counting the one I'm currently petting. is lying here next to me sweetly. Oh, well, I think Rasputin, my cat, is purring because he's very excited. He's finally gotten comfortable enough <laughs> in his identity and in our relationship to form a sexual attraction to me because he is demisexual and also a goddamn pervert because we're not the same species. <laughs> <laughs> well, how's, how's that for an opening? <laughs> That's an opening, all right. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know where to where to. <laughs> I'm speechless. So, Kat wrote an amazing article on what is also a really delightful and sort of the gift that keep, keeps on giving topic. No, not Aziz Ansari necessarily, although you know he's always in there. Little Allison Roman, a little Lena Dunham. No, no, no. We're talking something else. Demisexuals and demisexuality. Um, which, so Kat wrote a piece for Unheard called Demisexuals Are Scared of Sex. Desire has been purged from modern dating. And it's about how Demi Moore is, <laughs> no. Um, when I shared your article, somebody, I don't know if they were joking or not, asked if I had, was in doing so coming out as a demisexual. Ooh, I mean, that would be very brave of you, as we all know. This is sort of the last frontier of oppression, or at least um, the very <laughs> self-avowedly, <laughs> passionately demisexual seem to think so, which is part of what makes this such a rich topic for discussion. Yes, it is. So your piece is fantastic, but something we're, I think we're going to also have to talk about the reaction it got. Yes, yes. Um, that. So I got to say, I'm almost like kind of surprised and delighted that demisexuality as a concept has stuck around for so long and it is still creating so much emotion and so much passion amongst the incredibly small group of people for whom it is like a, a self-described identity and sexual orientation which we'll you know we'll get into that a little bit later um as you know, it, it continues to basically inflame passions in a way that it did when I first heard about it back in 2013. Um, and I, maybe I'd heard about it actually like in, a, in the previous year because I was on Tumblr at the time. And so that's sort of where it initially took hold. But um, but I'm just so excited that it, like it it uh, it holds up, you know, it's got this staying power. It still makes people just as mad as it once did. And that's great. It is. It is. Um yeah, so I, I love your uh, deep dive into the history of the term, which I had not known about. Um, I've only seen it recently. So there seem to be like, I guess, uh, maybe I'll just dive in and ask you about um, maybe your most controversial claim, which I I think is fair. <laughs> like, I think you, you are onto something. I, I don't think the controversial aspect is fair. But um, where you, you write... Um, the young women who adopted a demisexual label as a means of opting out were less angry than their closest analog, the young male incel, but both shared a sense that the system was broken. So you compare 
demisexual straight women with straight male involuntary celibates, right? You make an analogy. And what I was going to ask you about was um, how much of this you think is about people labeling themselves based off of who they are when they're still really, really young. Because I think like women with sort of robust sexual appetites might be pretty tentative when they're young teens and for, you know, obvious reasons. But while a lot of men who will end up having plenty of partners when they're older, when they're like 15, have never had sex. (laughs) And it's like, you know, and I feel like there's something about maybe it's the internet, maybe it's sort of the identity turn, the identitarian turn in the culture, where people just feel like they have to claim that whoever they happen to be at that moment is who they'll be forever. And these are just like, the normal situation of being a, a very specific age and that like, how much is is that this? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So much about this. Okay. Like number one, just to, to start with the last thing first, um, I don't know actually that this is a new behavior. I think that it has always been a thing for very young people to try on identities. Um, it, it, it happens to be that right now and for the past 10 years, gender and sexuality have been the lens through which they do that. Prior to that, it was more like, I'm a goth, I'm a vegan, I'm a party girl, you know, whatever. Um, but now, you know, the way that you decide who you are is by doing this sort of deep dive into your navel and into your like particular sexual orientations, attractions, preferences, and also your gender. Um, And so that's new. What is not new is teenagers being like, it's not a phase, mom. This is who I am. Right? (laughs) Like that, that is classic. Yes. So demisexuality, just like for the uninitiated, it is something that, um, yes, you know, first appeared as far as I've been able to tell on a role-playing forum in 2004 where it was assigned by a participant to a fictional character. Um, It was like a bespoke sexuality that she wanted to assign to this character. But at some point, the term made its way onto Tumblr. And I do think that that is where it gained the most traction, although I have seen one instance of it in 2006, also being posted on the AVEN message board, that is the Asexuality Visibility and Education Network. Um, So demisexuality is a quote-unquote sexual orientation, like parentheses, it's not a sexual orientation, we'll talk about that, (laughs) Um, but in which you cannot form an attraction a sexual attraction to a person unless you have first formed an emotional bond. So the people for whom this rings a really big bell and, you know, who want to like, quote unquote, come out as demisexual, they consider it a sexual orientation. Okay. So there was a whole lot of stuff that you kind of touched on that is like all very, very essential to this. At the front of it, this thing about feeling that the system is not serving you and trying to kind of find a safe place within that to carve out an identity that is sort of unassailable, that, you know, is a response to the pressure to, or the perceived pressure to have certain kinds of relationships, to feel certain kinds of things. Um, I think that that actually skews maybe a little bit older. I think that that's more like you see millennial women particularly gravitating towards this sexuality in response to 
the the ways in which dating is otherwise kind of broken for them. This makes it possible to say, I don't want to have sex until we've, you know, until we're emotionally connected slash until we have a commitment. And it can't be negotiated with, you can't be called a prude, you can't be criticized for it in any way, shape or form, um, or asked to like, you know, answer for the reasoning behind your feelings, because um, they're not feelings. It's who you are. quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. But yes, the reason that this is, forgive me, so goofy and so teenaged is that it stems from people who are like 15 years old, who have not only never had sex, but have never had a relationship, who have never kissed anybody, who can only conceive of sex in terms of this is a scary unknown. And my main thing is I'm afraid that someone's going to ask me to do something I don't want to do. Like that's their entire concept of sex. And so they construct this total identity around the sex that they don't want to have, all the stuff they don't want to do. And that also offers safety from a thing that is unknown, unfamiliar, a little intimidating. Um, It also is obviously an incredibly unsophisticated way to conceive of sex. Like, you know, it's incredibly immature. And so I think that what actually happens is, you know how um, there's that trope that bisexuality for men is just like a stop on the way to gay, like they identify as bi and then like later when they get comfortable, they come out as gay. Yes. Okay. So I think for a lot of the younger people who are identifying into demisexuality, they're doing it on their way out of identifying as asexual. So it's like, here's a way to bridge this gap from... I don't experience sexual attraction at all and I never want to have sex to realizing that maybe they might actually want to under certain circumstances, but to avoid betraying the identity that they've already ascribed to themselves, this asexual identity, which they're very, very serious about, they identify into demisexuality and it's like, I'm still like, I'm like asexual plus. You know, I'm asexual under all circumstances, except for if I'm if I happen to be in a relationship where I form an emotional bond, but I'm still very unusual. I'm still very special. I'm still very strange and not heterosexual. Definitely not a boring straight person. Yes, Well, certainly, certainly um, that's yeah, obviously I love that part of it because I think that's so much of it. Um, So another thing I wanted to ask you about, which kind of connects to what you were just saying about the unassailability um, is where you write uh but affixing the demisexual label uh, dresses up these traditional values as a form of queerness, making them not just more palatable to younger folks, but rhetorically unassailable. So that seems extremely true, and but like more broadly true. Because I was thinking, I've thought about this a lot in terms of like polygamy versus poly, and how the same situation where you have, or or you know, or ethical non-monogamy. How the same situation where there's one man with a bunch of different women, he can be with a bunch of different women. They're not allowed to be with anybody else. Is either trad or sort of reactionary or retrograde or whatever, or the height of modernity and queerness and all of this, depending on what labels are affixed to it, almost more than like the on the ground of reality of who's doing what. Does this? Do you see an analogy here? I do. You know, I think, the, again, there's this split between, you know, people who are doing this as like older people. If you're in your 20s, 30s, um, 40s, identifying as demisexual, I think you're trying to cope with 
a different set of pressures and a different set of anxieties than the really young people who are doing this. I, I have noticed that like, how to put this? Um, I, I feel bad because, you know, to talk about this even in a way that's like kind of truthful and uh, just observing what's going on, unfortunately can sound kind of dismissive or, or whatever. And that's not my intention. Like I have, you know, quite a lot of compassion for people who are who are in pain, who are like kind of searching around for something that, that makes them feel like less alone or like, you know, they have something to call themselves or like they've gained self-knowledge from this. Um, that said, I have noticed that the people who are adults, like full grown adults who are still identifying as demisexual are just like incredibly maladjusted. And there's, I don't know, it, it's like an attempt to make sense of a whole host of issues. You know, it's often not the only thing going on with them. Yeah, it's it's very it's very complicated, but I do think yeah that like it is a way to you know within this sort of sex positivity mess that we've all managed to get ourselves into um similar to the way that like you have people who are doing really trad maybe even really sexist things dressing it up as like well this is this is kink and hence it's queer and hence it's progressive and hence you can't question it. I think that, yeah, you have a similar thing of, you know, somebody who, who wants basically an incredibly conservative traditional relationship model, but they don't want to call it that. They don't want to sacrifice their their place on the progressive side. So they find a way to dress it up like that. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. It does. But oh, there are like two different strands from this that I want to address and I don't know even where to begin. So one is this idea of um, what is it that like is demisexuality just female heterosexuality? Now I have my thought, which is no. But um, I think that isn't I think this is something that the writer Louise Perry has written that it's like what basically like normal young women's sexuality is demisexuality and that that's sort of that this is giving a funny name to something that's just the norm. And that's where, like, that's where I, I'm not really sure because I think that it's what women have been, young women especially, have been kind of socialized into. And in a way, demisexuality just kind of keeps them in a certain trap. Like, I think there are some young women who really feel this. And I think there are others who just... I mean, remember slut shaming like that, I'm sure is still around. And I wonder whether, um, I guess I wonder whether some of this is um, sort of, I don't even know, enabling this in a way, enabling the kind of oppression or not oppression, like repression rather. Um, but then, oh, there was a second strand to this, which was um, completely gone from my head. Yeah, I want to just um, jump in on what you were saying about is this just like young female heterosexuality by another name? And is it trapping young women into like the kind of same old dichotomy? I mean, you and I, I think, grew up in an era where it, the kind of common wisdom was guys have sex because they want to have sex, like because they want to do it. They enjoy it physically. And girls have sex because they want an emotional connection. So like sex is not something they desire in its own right. It's a means to an end. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, to a certain extent, this strikes me as a variation on that. The twist that makes it more complicated is that the young women who identify into demisexuality will frequently and vocally profess that before they discovered this sexual minority identity, they felt like they were broken because, you know, because the culture says that you should be feeling horny for everybody all the time and wanting to have casual sex with everyone all the time. And I don't know, I I struggle, I guess, with the idea that things are so different now that young women really are stigmatized for just wanting to like know somebody a bit before they form a sexual bond um, to the point where they feel like like something is wrong with them because they want that. But that kind of goes hand in hand with the fact that uh, clearly a big appeal of identifying as demisexual as opposed to just saying, this is what I prefer, is that it gives you an entree into like this form of extremely low cost, low stakes queerness. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's okay. So yes, yes, that was the, yes, yes, that. So I realized that I wrote an article for the Hedgehog Review about sex positivity and what came of it, but it's paywalled. So I don't know whether, and I also, I'm like paywalled, I think, out of it. You're paywalled out of your own article? Oh, I'm always paywalled out of my own articles. That's normal for me. I, yeah. Are you not? Uh, I don't know. You're not paywalled out of your own work. I mean, your own work, like on in general. This has never happened to you. Um, I'm trying to think. Actually, it's happened to me at The Spectator a few times. And if I cared more about this, I would make a stink about it. Yeah. Like, side note, uh, freelance writers, if you are an employer of freelance writers, you should be giving them a free subscription to your publication so that they can, like, see their own stuff. In fairness, I think The Hedgehog Review did actually do this, and I might just not be logged in in this browser, but... Um, <laughs> Most places don't, and yeah, they should. Um, but the question of queerness, I think, is one I want to dwell on a little um, here, because this is something I think, yeah, that we've both written about and talked about, but like, I also have sympathy for the young, especially girls, women, you know, who feel like female heterosexuality is something they want to identify out of, and the problem that this always runs up against is not just is like on the one hand, this kind of generic, like, oh, they're snowflakes, but also this idea that they're appropriating queerness and taking something from people who are actually discriminated against for their sexuality. Because a young woman who needs to get to know the young man <laughs> she's involved with before having sex with him, is that really like even if there's some sort of pressure against doing that, even that if that's the less common way of doing things in her world, like it's not really like a marginalized sexual identity. So then, you know, the question is, is joining forces with queerness um, taking something away from the genuinely queer? And I guess it seems like I can say, I can come up with whatever thoughts I have on this, not that they're of much, value being that I am not a member of the queer community, nor more to the point of Gen Z, <laughs> because it seems like this is just kind of done. Like Gen Z is absolutely okay with labeling everything and everybody queer, regardless of, you know, like it doesn't seem to be limited to um, anything. 
Well, I mean, it's as though it's become synonymous with being interesting. And on the one hand, yay, right? Like, I'm so glad that we've we've uh, come this far, that it's there's no stigma attached to it whatsoever, to the point where people actually want to be non-straight because being straight is considered being boring. Um, I mean, I do have trouble, and this actually puts me in mind of a conversation that I had with a much older gay man who is um, a friend of my parents. He and I were talking about the prevalence of queer identities um, amongst young people and about the word queer. And he is really bothered by the adoption of that word. He feels like it's basically, you know, cheapening a struggle that was very real um, and, you know, this is this is a guy who lived in San Francisco, like in the 80s. He saw some shit. And I think that, you know, the opinion of a person like that needs to carry some weight when it comes to this. Like, sure, go ahead, you know, run roughshod over the whole notion of queerness and just turn it into like a synonym for being interesting. But acknowledge that, you know, you are in doing so kind of obscuring a very real, very painful struggle that happened within recent history, within living memory, if that makes sense. That absolutely makes sense to me and makes me think of a conversation that I listened to a podcast with Dan Savage and the writer James Kerchick. So James Kerchick has a new book that I have out from the library. It's like 500 pages. I have not read it yet um, about like sort of the history of of gay men mainly and and lesbians in Washington DC but he was saying basically that like the reason that there's been so much sort of weirdness around like who threw the first brick at Stonewall and all of this has been because of a whole generation of men you know so many of them dying dying of AIDS and that just put everything about these sort of like gender identity wars into like a sort of different and very bleak <laughs> perspective um, that I hadn't really, it's not that I hadn't known about, you know what I mean? I hadn't really thought of, I hadn't put these two pieces together like that, but just sort of that, like why it would be this sort of old fashioned, as it were, gay rights would sort of be weakened in the public sphere. It's a, that a lot of the sort of, you know, boomers who might otherwise be kind of taking up that mantle um, and the men, especially who, you know, for better or worse, you know, tend to dominate the public sphere, you know, men rather than women, not gay men specifically, but, um, but that basically you don't hear from them because there just aren't as many. Mm -hmm. Here's, there's something else too about this that I wanted to talk about um, because I think it complicates this idea that like, well, maybe we've just moved into a, a place culturally where queerness is not what it used to be, um, you know, where it's just strictly like a positive club to belong to. So, okay. I don't know if it's too early to, to get into more broadly the response that I got to this piece, but this was a representative reply. Yes, I want to I want to get into this. I want to get into this. Definitely, definitely. I don't want to miss that. So I had first retweeted Unheard's tweet about this, just drawing attention to the fact that it was getting quite noisy <laughs> in the replies mm -hmm. and quote tweets. Um, you know, somebody accused me of not knowing where the word comes from. This stems from um, a lot of unhappiness, which I think I understand to a certain extent, but it is still, you know, the truth is the truth about 
where the word originated. People do not like that it originated on a role-playing forum. I think they feel that it's, you know, like frivolous or invalidating in some way. Um, and so I was accused of having lied about where it came from. And I basically tweeted like, actually, you know, I, I seem to know more about where this word came from than a lot of people who use it to identify themselves. And, you know, that's fine and it's not a big deal, but it is a really interesting history. Then somebody retweeted that tweet and this is what they said. Just say you hate queers and go. It's all so tiring. Okay. So where to begin? But you, but I mean, clearly, you know. Okay. So for one thing, I'm not going to say that because it's not true, but I also think it's really interesting to see somebody openly requesting this, you know, it's like literally begging to be hated, begging to be persecuted um, because there's something aspirational about being the object of loathing in this way. It's like, I don't know who I am until I know that you hate me for who I am. And if you hate me for my sexual orientation and that validates it in some way, it means that I am part of a bigger history and a noble struggle. And that's where I think the relationship between something like demisexuality and the broader history of the struggle for gay rights gets really messy and gets really complicated because there is this form of stolen valor. It's like simultaneously they want there to be no negative associations with queerness. Like they don't want, and I don't think anybody actually expects there to be negative repercussions for coming out as demisexual. Like there's, there's simply nothing, nothing happens when you do that. Um, but they love the idea of making themselves part of a community that is hated by like the right people. And yeah, and I don't think that you can kind of talk about like this idea of a sort of a cultural sea change without noting that people who are doing this are still, at least in part, clinging to the bad old days because they want to feel like they're part of the struggle. So that's all super interesting. And yeah, <laughs> I don't I don't know that I have much to add apart from yeah, it's just making me think of something that I think it's um, a friend of pod, Katie Herzog, who said, although possibly not, or possibly not only, but about sort of like the, with gender identity. And if you have this idea of gender nonconformity, that's like where they're the sort of, where either you're cis or trans and um, this, this way that like you end up putting a lot of people into a box that doesn't fit by saying like, well, if you're not the one thing, then you're the other. And that means that, all cisgender women um, feel comfortable with femininity or something like mm -hmm. that. I don't, does this, so I, I think that like something like that happens in a lot of, not just to do with demisexuality, but in general, when I see sort of queerness written about lately, like I do get the sense that it's like, so who's left, who's not queer and what is assumed about those people, you know? And like, I guess, <laughs> I think it seems to be, it's assumed that they're boring. It's assumed that they're sort of asexual in a square way. Um, and that makes me really, really need to play a clip. <laughs> got engaged in 62, got married in the April in a nice pale blue. It all turned sour to say the least. I was stuck in Abigaili with a sex crazed beast. <laughs> A wedding night I heard a cough There was Harold in the doorway with his jammers off I said, now look, I must be blunt I couldn't give a beggar on the whole sex front Not me, not me 
not my scene. I prefer a game of rummy and an oval teen. <laughs> oh dear, now do get dressed. I've seen one in a book and I was not impressed. <laughs> okay, so did that go through? Yes, what was that? <laughs> okay, so I will... I, I did a newsletter post on this that I will link to because it has it like embedded where I talk about what this is. Um, it's from the 90s. It's the British comedian Victoria Wood. Um, it's a song called Pam. And it's sung from the perspective of Pam, who's this lady who first has a marriage to a man that doesn't work out because she doesn't like sex. And she's very funny, clearly. Mm-hmm. Pam, this character about this. So it's like in three parts. First, there's the husband, Harold. She's seen one in a book. She's not impressed. Okay. Then she gets divorced and uh, chums up with a woman by the name of Joan. And Joan is, you know, a butch lesbian. This is not said as Joan is a butch lesbian. It's, you know, alluded to whatever. Mm -hmm. So Joan confesses her love and Pam still doesn't like sex. Like, it's not that Pam doesn't like women. She doesn't seem like men either, you know. So then that doesn't work out, right? Then Pam goes on a cruise uh, and meets a different man. And the man is really insists upon um, trying to show her like that he can, he'll be the one to make her come around to sex. Mm -hmm. But, um, and he bets her 10 pounds that she'll like British pounds that she will have an orgasm while he's around. He has a heart attack while attempting this. And she's sipping her tea while they take him away and says that she's never, she realizes that she's never had that orgasm. So she's 10 pounds up and that's how the song ends. And it is incredible. And yeah, wow. <laughs> like a lot of, a lot of her songs fit with this sort of demisexuality theme where they're kind of, and a lot are the opposite. So like a lot of her songs are either that it's like these characters who are these like sort of, hypersexual women who are just there's one where's like in a different song was like who has big red lips and cleavage that could drown a mouse is the description that's not for that big i mean a mouse is very small well <laughs> well that is i have thought about this about about why she chose mouse for that line but um does it rhyme yeah a lot of this is is rhyming and um but this character pam though just to kind of Apart from that, like, you really need to, you, Kat, and you, everybody listening to this needs to just, like, dive into the Victoria Wood YouTube sinkhole and never and drown like a mouse in it, like I've been doing. <laughs> um, but basically, like, this Pam character, at the beginning of the song is something like, I don't say gay, I still say queer, I think that Mussolini had the right idea. And, like, the way her you know in the british accent you know it's like idea idea queer, yeah you know and it's like you think she's going to be just this yeah i don't know I, I just i think about it as kind of like the old timey like woman who proudly doesn't like sex as sort of a type because she's not like ashamed of it you know she's not like ashamed of this character mm-hmm. right not victoria wood but this character is not ashamed of being like frigid or something but she's also not living in some sort of really really long time ago society where sex wouldn't have been expected of her the character like she says she got engaged in 62 so she would have been kind of a mid late 20th century lady and i was reminded 
when we're talking about this, of another amazing line from a different song of hers. And this one is like auto fiction, right? Like she's singing about herself, but it's like a silly song with rhymes and not to be taken literally. It's about how she was terrible at sex. And she has this line that's, it was third, it was, she's, I can't sing, I'm sorry. But where she sings that it was 33 when it dawned on me that girls could move as well. <laughs> like about how sex works. And it was really funny. Um, yeah. I, I think it's funny that, um, you know, you've, you've mentioned the way that like every other woman who's not this woman ends up stacking up um, and being painted as, you know, perhaps like a sex crazed maniac in the context of her sort of identifying herself as not this, because that is in fact one of the really funny things about the kerfuffle surrounding this article and also about, you know, anytime somebody casts any kind of doubt or even, you know, wants to engage critically on the question of what demisexuality actually is, like what it accomplishes, what are these people doing? You start to see people, many of whom, again, are like 15 years old and, you know, have never had a physically intimate relationship in their lives, which is fine, but they start to say, the most incredible things, the most just incredibly sweeping generalizations about how the rest of the world experiences sexual attraction and how the rest of the world engages in sex by way of distancing themselves from it. And you see them saying things like, well, most people want to have sex with strangers multiple times <laughs> per day. Like they are sexually attracted to people they see in movies and want to have sex with them. And I am not like that. And that makes me very unusual. And it's really funny because if you suggest that this is not the case, like, you know, I mean, it's it just it does not get through. Um, there's this real conviction, which re it reminds me a lot of uh, this thing that Rebecca Cooper, Riley, Riley Cooper. I, this is driving me crazy. I can only remember her Twitter handle, which is Boodaloops. But she wrote this about um, non-binary identity, about how there's this need to like slot everybody else into a box because you need to identify as boxless. And that reminds me very much of what happens, you know, when people who are demisexual, who are trying to kind of describe how different they are, start to talk about how everybody else experiences sex and sexual attraction. It's really, it's just pretty wild. Well, right. I mean, it's the, the other girls meme, which seems to yes, come up all the exactly, time with this. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the, the minute you delve into it for a second, you realize that the, the non-queer world has, you know, varied people in it too. And that if you define, you know, anybody who's either interesting or unusual in any way as queer, you basically are left with nobody who isn't. And then you don't have a category anymore, which, like you say, is good if it means acceptance, is bad if it means kind of dismissal of struggles and of different experiences. Well, I wonder if you think that demisexuality represents something problematic in terms of how it plays on the landscape. Like, is it just young people doing young people stuff that we need to ignore? Or does it, I mean, is it in a position, it's, obviously it's become visible in certain ways. Like they're now a marketing category. The thing that prompted this unheard essay was that it's um, it's now being included on the Hinge app. It's being discussed like um, in advertisements for the dating app. People are like, I'm demisexual. How do I have conversations about waiting to get sexual? It's like, 
this this could so easily be a dispatch from 30 years ago where it's just I have traditional values. How do I have a conversation about wanting to wait a little while to have sex? Yeah. Um, I guess I do think it's a problem that the whenever the sort of normative experience gets um, lab- like chooses to label itself or gets labeled as something sort of that's not just like, like it's one thing to have a name for it. And it's another to claim that it's a, an oppressed minority. And what's interesting and weird I find about demisexuality and how this is playing out is often you get something like with cis, right? Cisgender, where the idea is that you have the name for these people who are the vast majority of people on this earth. And the name is like, this is the oppressor, right? But here you have this group of people who are doing the normal, typical thing. And there's somehow, somehow it's that they're oppressed. And yeah, that I just find very curious. Like, I'm not concerned about it. It just seems sort of surprising. Like, I could see if it were about men and that it was about the the whichever handful of young men have no sexual interest or less sexual interest or need, a, need a, to be in a relationship or whatever it is. I could see that they would be under more pressure. But the idea that young women are oppressed for not jumping into bed with everybody seems strange. Yeah, it just seems it's odd that it fell that way, I guess. Oh, man, I have, I have so many like additional thoughts on this. And I'm trying to figure out which one I want to start with. I So I think that maybe where I feel that this idea of demisexuality becomes potentially problematic, it really has nothing to do with young people identifying as demisexual or even adults identifying it. Like, I don't really care. I don't think that it ultimately makes that much difference for any individual person to say, well, this speaks to something that I feel is true about me. And so I want, you know, I want a special flag for it. Like you can have that. It doesn't really matter. Um, But because it is being positioned as a sexual minority orientation, and because we happen to live in a moment where a lot of adults with a lot of cultural and political influence have decided that anything that is even like adjacent to a sexual minority is the next frontier of civil rights and needs to be taken extremely seriously. What you have now is this situation where every time a young person like wakes up on a different side of the bed and is like, oh, I guess I'm this now, you know, I'm coming out as this today, adults who should know better and should not be doing this or just like falling all over themselves to act as a positive sounding board for that and to like, you know, adjust kind of the national discourse to talk about how great this is. And it you do reach the point, and I've noticed this in other contexts, but this is, this is just one in which I think it's especially funny, where you start to get this kind of like deification of young people who are like genuinely just doing the thing that confused young people do when they're trying to figure things out. But instead of ignoring it the way that adults are supposed to, it's like these children have so much to teach us and like, we should listen to the kids. It's, it's not even just the kids are all right. It's like the kids are our new moral authorities. And like, I'm sorry, but I am not going to accept sexual instruction or like broad generalizations about how most people experience sex from a bunch of people who've never been kissed. I'm not doing it. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, yeah. Okay. So I think you've convinced me. I, yeah. I think where I come down on this, and I guess this is something, yeah, that I, it's a, rem, I'm remembering that I have written about this, even though my brain is a pile of mush. Sometimes these things come back to me. This idea of like 
that the interesting people are the ones with the labels and the uninteresting people are the ones who are unlabelable doesn't really add up. And I'm not sure that having a sort of, oh, I don't know how to put this, like, there's just so much of human experience that falls between labels that you can't ever label everybody, right? Like, it doesn't really work. And this project to just find labels for everything and everybody, like, it would be okay if it were just in some sort of neutral descriptive sense, but it never is, right? Everybody has to be either an oppressor or the oppressed. And I think that's, yeah, yeah, I think that's where it falls apart. And that's why I guess I, I find myself nostalgic for, yeah, an era of fewer labels. Yes. I mean, it's certainly an inversion of, you know, the used, it used to be the cool thing to be like, I defy labels. You can't pin me down. Mm-hmm. And now it's sort of like you, you collect them like badges, um, which is, you know, we live in a different moment for whatever reason. This is how, this is how the culture has aligned. But the thing that I think is also maybe problematic is like, and I, I think back now to the way that it was received when I would try to write advice columns on this topic, because I would receive letters from kids who were like, I just heard about demisexuality and wow, like that's me. I finally have like a special name for the thing that I am. I'm so excited. And I understand why certainly somebody who is young and experienced, you know, a little afraid of sex, hasn't had it, doesn't know what to expect, you know, and, and is mainly conceiving of it as something that they don't want to be made to do when they don't want to do it would basically construct an identity and a sort of a safety zone around the idea of only wanting to have sex under very circum- certain circumstances, which is to say constructing identity around how much they don't want to have sex, like under most circumstances. So I think that basically what this does is it gives kids a means of analyzing and maybe almost compartmentalizing something that is unknown and scary to them. It's like, hey, you know, I got that sorted. I got that figured out. The thing is, as you were saying, it's never it never ends up just being about the label. You have young folks who, you know, identify into this label and they suddenly derive an enormous amount of meaning from it mm-hmm. because of the way that, you know, adults are now decided that it's their job to like validate every fucking identitarian fart that comes out of the youth uh, <laughs> the youth brigade they're like getting an enormous amount of positive attention and affirmation for whatever labels they choose they're basically getting entrenched in certain communities and especially extremely online communities based on the labels they use so they become very attached to the labels is there an elephant in this room by any chance <laughs> what's what's the <laughs> elephant well i'm thinking about the whole desistance topic and this idea that who people think they are when they're very young doesn't always turn out to be who they are and what stakes are there are when adults embrace and encourage 12 year olds along their way that is the elephant in the room okay just checking that that is the elephant (laughs) the elephant was full of landmines so now the elephant has exploded thank you phoebe (laughs) I just wanted to make sure that the elephant was the elephant I thought I had identified. Yeah, you know, I was sort of debating whether to even mention that because, God, it is such a minefield. It is such a fraught topic. But I do think that there is something about this desire to, like, affirm the kids, drop all the guardrails. Let's do everything that they want to do when you're talking about permanent medical changes 
on their physical bodies, that yeah, maybe we should slow our roll a little bit. Um, you know, at least reintroduce the concept of adult caution, if not adult gatekeepers, into some of this stuff. Well, with demisexuals, you don't have this though. Like, right. with de- a demisexual is not. You, there's no surgery involved. There's no. No. So I was just going to say the only the only risk of it, and this is even more of a. This is why I have mixed feelings about it, because I do think that demisexuality ends up being kind of like a gateway to just being a normal straight person for kids who start out saying I'm asexual. Um, So some of them are clearly just like kind of bridging themselves out the way that kids always have out of identities that turn out to be transitional, that turn out to not really be quite the right thing for them. And that's fine. And that's great. What I have seen and what I think is a concern is that because of this element of adults, you know, affirming and validating and getting really invested in identities, if you have a young person who's like constructed their sense of self around not wanting to have sex um, or not wanting to do anything really, but not wanting to have sex, like you end up kind of painting yourself into a corner where like you become very invested in in holding on to the label perhaps even after it has stopped serving you and becoming like a sexually well-adjusted person is actually something that you should want to do and and you know that you should aspire to so the thing that concerned me when I tried to address this in the form of an advice column as I said I, I think that finding this label is very comforting to a lot of kids. But if you suggest to them that the comforting label may not actually be serving them and you say like, well, sure. Okay. You know, this maybe maybe this is how you feel now, but you're 15. So it's probable that you'll feel differently about this in another two or five or 10 years. Like, so that's also okay. And don't cling to this label if it no longer serves you. It was like, outrage was the reaction. It was like, how dare you leave room for me to grow? And so anytime that you see a kid basically like shutting off that avenue and saying like, no, I'm not going to grow. This is it. I'm done. And everyone around them is like, yeah, that's right. You are. You're done. You are never going to be any different than you are right now at the age of 15. Then I think you really get into like dangerous territory. I mean, yeah, I think you just have to have that balance between Like, I don't think that who you are at 15 is less who you truly are than who you are at 25, at 55, whatever. I don't think any of these ages are like your true self. And I think it's like, it's especially annoying to teenagers, but I find it just annoying still just the idea that like the sort of, that everything's a phase when you're young, but that you're, you're your true self when you're older. I don't think that that's it. So I think it's fine, like to, you know, respect the 15 year old as being who they are at that time. At the same time, it is extremely like <laughs> there are certain things that are very normal at 15 less so at 25 and so on and this idea that you have that everything is an identity label that you have to stick with or it's like embarrassing seems to be a lot of uh or, or you lose your friends because they're all around some identity label mm-hmm. and it just that seems the upsetting part yeah yeah i think actually you touched on something interesting which is you know it's not that it's, you know, it's not a phase. It's that everything is a phase. We all go through phases. And it's just that as you become an adult and you enter your 20s and then your 30s and your 40s, you come to terms with the fact that whatever you're into is probably transitional. You know, there's very little about you and about your interests that is static. But also, 
none of that stuff, this idea that like this represents something very important about you or that you need to be on this journey of self-discovery, like with your eyes embedded in your navel at all times, that type of kind of self-exploration as leisure activity just isn't really available to most adults because we have a lot of other shit to do. It's like you have a job, you have a family, you have bills to pay, like you have hobbies that fulfill you. We had the plumber here this morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, you know, there's just so much less time to spend sitting around thinking about like, what type of sex do I not want to have? And what does this say about me? So you spend more time as an adult dealing with the plumber and less thinking about your own plumbing. Ooh, yes, that is it. I'm very proud of this. That's that's so good that we could probably end on it unless you have anything else to say. <laughs> no, no, I, I've got that. It's downhill from there for me. Yeah. Um, and if you enjoyed this conversation, we encourage you to subscribe to Feminine Chaos on Substack, where you can join our special premium club with exclusive access to two premium episodes per month and our entire back catalog of prior archived episodes. And a bi-weekly chat with uh, one another. Yes. We also are um, currently taking topic suggestions there. So uh, yeah, you know, That's per right. periodically we pull from the comments. Um, we love hearing from you guys. So yeah, uh, feel free to join. We encourage you to join. I believe this was suggested. I think somebody suggested talking about your article about demisexuality. So. That's right. Yeah. Look at that. Um, yeah, we probably were going to do that anyway, but <laughs> we're on the same wavelength. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So please feel free to uh, form a, an emotional bond with the Feminine Chaos Substack Before getting more serious. Before getting more serious. Yeah. All has right. this been Feminine Chaos, would you say? I, I would say it has. Bye. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye.